Welcome to In Defense of Humanity. My name is Osteris Oz Miller. Today, we are joined by Christian Dasher. Of course, my co-host, Khalid Johnson, is here. And Christian, please introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name is Christian Dasher. I'm a music major here at Young Harris College, and I play the saxophone. Uh, growing up, I also grew up on a farm. And I think that's why I'm here today. Is that right, Asteris? That is correct. Okay, perfect, perfect. So you're a saxophonist and you grew up on a farm. Would you consider yourself a farmer or someone who grew up on a farm? Oh, that's hard. Uh, I think I would say farmer. Okay. Um, I think, and if my dad listens to this, I don't know if he'll laugh or nod or. <laughs> um, but I think the big reason why I'd say farmer is over the last few years, I've had to step up and really help my dad on the farm because mm -hmm. recently he was involved in a, a tractor accident on the road someone rear-ended him in an open-air tractor and he had to have two uh, discs in the his spine replaced in the, at the base of his neck and so while he's had surgery he's still not at a hundred percent yet um, so any help that he can get uh, I try to help as much as I can okay Perfect. And you're also a saxophonist. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a musician and then we can move on to what it's like to be a farmer? Uh, as a musician during COVID times? Is that what you um, Sort of. I mean, I know we did the episode already on being a musician uh, during COVID times in which we talked a little bit about farming. This mm. is the reverse of that episode. We'll talk <laughs> a little bit about music and then a lot about farming. Uh, growing up on the farm um, mm. and in my household, there was a lot of emphasis on music. So I think that's how I kind of got um, interested in it because while we're working, we'll play music to just kind of, the work's hard. So the music mm. helps to get the work done. Um, and from there, that interest kind of turned into a passion and I'd equate honing your skill as a musician to farming because both take a lot of patience and practice because not everything is going to go the way that you want it to. And mm -hmm. both are extremely large risks. Um, I would almost equate farmers to being the world's worst gambling addicts because each season you don't know how it's going to play out. You just hope for mm. the moment and you roll the die. Okay, okay. So that's that's very interesting. So they sort of, both of your passions, farming as, a, as being born into it and then music as a necessity because it was also on the farm, which led you to your eventual career path of becoming a, a musician and then learning the technical and the music theory and now being in university to study it? 
Mm-hmm. Excellent. And so now we can jump directly to farming. Uh, tell us a little bit about your farm. Okay. Um, so my father owns Glenville Produce and Vidalia Organics. We are a third generation farm where we're very small, uh, mom and pop. The mm-hmm. only people on payroll is my dad, my granddad. Um, and we need to hire independent contractors for any labor that we do. Um, so we're very small. Whenever there needs, whenever something needs to be done, it's just us. Um, and so with that, right now, we're facing hard times because small farms and even medium-sized farms that are bigger than us are being uh, pushed out of the market by large corporation farms. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is no help from the government. Um, okay. Okay. The most that we have, uh, as to, to my knowledge, the most that we've ever gotten is a, um, here, uh, a new, uh, in Georgia, there was a new program passed for um, EBT mm-hmm. or SNAP, where if you buy from a local produce, the government will match it up to $50. Mm-hmm. So it's to help incentivize people shopping locally from a farmer so that the farmer can get double what they would have otherwise. But that's about it. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. Cause that was one of the questions, of course, um, government subsidies in, in theory work. And then we always hear about big dairy and even the corn industry getting massive subsidies, but I suppose not for Vidalia onions. Where the, uh, subsidies kind of gets iffy, um, <clears throat> at the root, a subsidy is a good thing. Subsidies <clears throat> were started to ensure that people had access to cheap food. Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. in the US, only row crops are subsidized. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. corn, soybean, and I don't hear much of it, but rice too. Mm -hmm. Um, People don't eat cotton, but it's subsidized because it's a major export. Uh, Corn is also heavily subsidized because it's used in a lot of stuff. It's also exported. Uh, Dairy is subsidized as well. Uh, But what is not subsidized in the U.S. are vegetables and fruits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Whereas in the EU, a vegetable farmer gets a subsidy per acreage of their farm that they grow. The EU their subsidies actually make sense because it is to mm-hmm. ensure that people had food to eat that is cheap and that things don't go to waste. Yeah. Um, so it, it makes no sense to me why we are not subsidizing vegetables and fruits in the U.S. Mm. Absolutely. From, from my understanding, very specifically, um, as the audience already knows, I know a little bit about dairy. Uh, it's one of my passions to be anti-dairy, not for dairy. But 
uh, during the world wars, you know, we dehydrated milk, condensed it to ship it over. So subsidies were applied so that farmers could sell at a profit during wartime and then send over without significant loss to soldiers. And then they were overproducing um, dairy and by default veal. So whenever the soldiers came back, they started making propaganda saying, oh, you need dairy or milk for to uptake calcium to make strong bones, even though it's actually counterproductive to drink milk for strong bones. Now we know, um, but they were, they were yelling, oh, get milk got milk and then that's where that campaign started as well and it's just so ingrained in what it means to be american to have milk at every meal or to eat everything with cheese in it and then no one realizes the origin i try to explain to people that americans were not always this for lack of a better term horny for milk it wasn't mm -hmm. Um, so what are you asking, I guess? So my question here in lies, how, if the EU has these subsidies for vegetables, how does a farmer, a modern farmer as yourself, as your father survive? Um, to put it bluntly, uh, you don't, <laughs> um, it really goes back to larger farms pushing out the market. Um, nowadays, there are five major meatpacking companies. There are five major grocery stores. Um, and so they'll enter a community. They will push you out um, because they're the ones that can't afford to take the loss. Mm -hmm. uh, they have enough funds that they can outcompete. I don't want to say outcompete. Um, they can cut you short. I think is a better phrase, because both of you are going to pay top dollar for fertilizer, top dollar for chemicals, top dollar for machineries. But it mm -hmm. comes down to the price of labor and how low can you actually sell this? How much of a quantity can you sell this to come up with a profit? And for us we can't compete with Walmart. Mm -hmm. um, there are times when we have to sell. The only way that we can sell produce is we have to sell it at or below a price met by Walmart and hope that enough people come stop at our produce stand that we make a profit. And that's really all it that's how we get by is just hoping that people in our community will support us. But that's hard because why would you make that extra stop when you could go to just Walmart and get everything? Uh, it's quick, it's easy. Um, what should have happened a long time ago is the US government should have stepped in and they should have broken up these large corporate meat farms or the, yeah large corporate meat companies. They should have broken up companies as large as Walmart. They mm. should have broken up Costco. They should have broken up these large companies because mm -hmm. they're making it to where uh, mom and pop businesses cannot reliably stay open in their communities 
And what happens is if Walmart or Costco or some other retailer gets it wrong and they realize that maybe three, four years down the line that they're not actually making a profit in this community anymore, it does not faze them to remove them, to remove that uh, retailer and close down. And so what that effectively has done is that's created a food shortage, a food shortage in that community that already its needs were being net, met. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it just blows my mind that both parties uh, try to appeal to the farmer, but the farmer that they only ever appeal to are the row crop farmers because they're the ones getting government money. Um, and both of them use it as propaganda. Mm -hmm. is, uh, in 2019, uh, President Trump, he issued a $19 billion uh, subsidy uh, small farms never saw a cent of that unless they did row crop. It did not actually help uh, small farmers. I'm glad that you brought Trump up, actually, because, you know, you notice within a lot of these rural um, farming communities, um, like this culture of this kind of blind loyalty to conservatism and to, you know, Trump politics. And then, you know, when you look at these smaller farms and these smaller businesses um you know we can even look at like COVID and what happened mm -hmm. over the summer the smaller businesses needed it the most to stay afloat and they didn't get enough and so you saw a lot of places go under and so you know i'm just kind of curious um if you've noticed any like shift within that kind of cultural um favoritism for Trump in conservative policies, especially when they've really fallen short on a lot of these promises to their base, you know? Um, a, lot of, a lot of my family members are conservative um, and there is a frustration, but the thing that really, uh, that from speaking with farmers in my local community, the biggest thing is the way that we get cut short is labor. And the biggest fear that farmers have is if the price of labor goes up, I cannot afford to stay in business. And this is kind of like a never, uh, another topic in itself of the minimum wage, what should uh, farm workers be paid um, because I know for our farm, we do not pay minimum wage, um, but we don't pay $15 an hour. And so what kind of gets uh, clipped, like that gets clipped is uh, Democrats or liberals uh, want to change the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And in our community, nobody that's a small farmer would be able to pay that $15. And so it instills the sphere of, okay, how can I ensure that I can still put food on the table and pay my bills? The biggest, um, the biggest obstacle or the biggest threat to that is the government changing the cost of minimum wage. And so that is why 
that to me, from what I've noticed, that's the big thing of why people are in rural communities, farmers typically tend to be conservative. Now, not everybody is conservative. And there are many farmers that disdain Trump because of his behavior, but they'll vote for Trump because they don't want to pay more because they can't. And then we have another farm that goes under. And so trying to balance the two is very hard, but their livelihoods are at stake and they feel like this is what I have to do for my family because I can't afford to pay $15 an hour. Exactly. I mean, it almost feels like a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing, right? Because it's like, cool, you vote for the conservative party where they're not, you know, too keen on raising the minimum wage and they, and you know, the culture has always kind of favored them anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's like, you, you, but you're getting shorted as far as policies go. You know, you're not getting the subsidies you need to actually stay afloat as you would need them. And then, you know, with more liberal policies, a $15 minimum wage also makes it hard to stay afloat or sustain, mm-hmm. you know? Wait, uh, I know it's no fix and it's not the perfect answer, but I almost feel like minimum wage should be a cost of living adjustment that is put in place by have it be a federal mandate but have the states enact it and just hope that this localized minimum wage would be better than $15 straight across the board because $15 doesn't help it would help people more coming from uh, low, low income families, it would help people in like Wyoming, Texas, uh, mm. South Georgia more than $15 would help someone in San Francisco, New York. So I really feel like minimum wage should be adjusted for cost of living. And I think that would help farmers a little bit because right now it's just being blasted all the time. Uh, Biden Harris, if they get elected, minimum wage will go up. Uh, and they, you lose a lot of support from farmers that way. But why mm-hmm. not like push, um, you know, kind of broadening the mm-hmm. scope of subsidies, right? Mm-hmm. That way you're getting a bit more money from the government. You're getting a bit more aid as far as, you know, what you're producing. And with more aid also comes the ability to kind of pay your workers a little bit more. I think, I think there's a way to, you know, kind of balance it out. Mm -hmm. if we were to adopt an eu method of subsidy i feel like that would help encourage farmers to keep farming because even if they're making okay money um they may not be incentivized to keep going because farmer Mm -hmm. burnout is high You, you do not see people going to banks asking for loans to start farms people don't want to be farmers anymore um, because in, at least in the United States, it's very hard. You do not have those incentives to keep doing it unless, you know, you were able to get a high loan and you plan to do row crops. But if you wanted to do say strawberries, blueberries, tomatoes, you're out of luck. Um, if there's a natural disaster, maybe you get some relief, but it's not always likely. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we do have a federally mandated minimum wage right now, which is almost exactly half of the predicted 15. Mm -hmm. And so governments, um, you know, states rights people, we, we know who they actually are. Some, some, most of the time racist, but I will say this, states rights, you know, California does up per city, their minimum wage. So whenever we do the 15 across the board, um, as you were saying, even individualized cities and states would have to adjust it based on the standard of living, like you were also saying. But then even I think, right, if someone's getting paid 725 in Cairo, Georgia, or like Commerce, Georgia, I still don't think that's enough money to survive. So mm. if they were farm hands and they were getting paid the $15 minimum wage, maybe they're an, an individual migrant worker, they might be able to live in like subsidized housing and survive with that. But as of right now, what we have is the minimum wage. There's no way they could survive, even work 60, 70 hours a week without having surplus income. So I agree with Khalid that if we, and you, if we had the EU style subsidies, you know, even first step would be to rejoin the, the Paris Accord, you know, uh, start worrying about the environment and then realizing that row crops are more damaging than they are good for the profit. Don't, don't let the cotton corporations hear you. <laughs> you know, I, I've been on this, I've been on this train for a while you know, Monsanto, even though people are like, they don't exist anymore. They got purchased by a Canadian company. Uh, that doesn't matter. If you bust up a trust and then you reconglomerate it under a different name, it's still the same entity. I don't care what it's called. I don't care what country it's based in. I mean, clearly farmers like yourself, small, medium-sized farms are not getting the subsidies necessary for survival. And big companies can change their name or disassemble and then reassemble in another constituency and be fine. Mm -hmm. So I ask, what do we do? It, it would really take the US government stepping in with antitrust laws, anti-monopoly laws to break up these companies. That's the only way to even start addressing the problems that we've talked about today. Um, because everything can go back to, it's just too hard to compete against these large corporations. Um, there is no competition today. Um, they wouldn't look at us as any form of competition. It is us trying to eat crumbs off the table. That's really what it is. And you know, once again, like you look at who got the biggest aid during the crisis, right? It was your big corporations, um, which just goes to show and illustrate that a lot of these promises from, you know, both sides, you know, I'm critical of both sides of the aisle, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, a lot of these promises, especially from the conservative party that claims to be the party of the people, the, the, you know, the, the, the lower class worker or whatever, that's not who they're really favoring, right? Um, because a lot of the people, um, a lot of these constituents 
these lobbyists for the conservative party have money. They come from money. And so, you know, money's always going to choose money. And it's all and mm-hmm. money's gonna stick together. And so when you have these rural people that are faithful to, you know, the vote, are are faithful to voting conservative and they're getting screwed over, you know, it makes you question, why aren't we getting more disillusion? Why mm-hmm. hasn't, you know, why why are we still kind of blindly faithful? There are people that continuously struggle with, you know, maintaining their small businesses um, have to have a small business and work a second job and like work a second job, you know, to maintain some quality of life. And you shouldn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, to comment about uh, the belief of conservatism among farmers, I think one of the worst things that has helped cement that is NAFTA and that it was Clinton that signed NAFTA in 1993. And so because of that, now US farmers have to compete with Mexico. And from that, there's so much, um, people are still angry about it today that NAFTA was signed in the first place for farmers because there's now this abundant supply of fruit and vegetables grown in Mexico that is pushed up here. And it's cheaper for corporations and grocery stores to buy it from Mexico and resell it here than it is to purchase produce within the United States. And so I think that's kind of why it's just been almost bad luck, I guess, in reaffirming these beliefs of these people have already hurt me once and they're saying things that are raising flags that will hurt me once again, even though in the, um, in the heroes act that was passed, there was little mention for farms that suffered loss. Um, I know at the start of the pandemic, uh, or not the start, but in March, there were so many farmers that had to let their produce go to waste because restaurants weren't open. They had no one to sell their produce to that. I think it was either a high school student or college students started to get together and purchasing produce from farmers to then snell for food banks that didn't have enough food. Now, I saw that on like my Facebook feed and Twitter feed as like a feel good story, but I couldn't help but feel that this should have never happened in the first place. There should have been something put in place by the government. Subsidies would be a good one to ensure that the public had access to cheap food and that food did not go to waste. Um, And the US government really dropped the ball on that. Um, And the fact that it had to be 18, 20 year olds to solve this problem uh, just blows my mind that everybody was okay with this. I mean, it's always gonna be the younger generation to uh, 
kind of look at the failings of what came before us. Welcome back to In Defense of Humanity after our ad break. And we're back with Christian Dasher. Hi. Um, so what would you like to hear more about? I'm interested, you know, I guess this is just like a constant thing with me and kind of mm -hmm. par for the course. But, you know, I'm pretty interested in like politics, you know, just, mm -hmm. just farming in general, you know, and the kind of nature of that. I think Asteris is frozen because he hasn't blinked at all. I can't tell, but uh, as you were, what were you saying? Um, just, just, just like general politics within mm -hmm. farming and communities, you know, just kind of exploring the mental space of a lot of this. And, you know, I guess analyzing the impacts of COVID and, and, you know, just the different multifaceted aspects of farming, I guess. I guess the biggest thing is farmers are often used as propaganda as almost a poster child uh, we see this often with our military and how veterans and soldiers are often used for political purposes uh, the same thing happens with farmers um, people will use farmers to get what they want um, we see this with republicans oftentimes um, the trump 2019 uh, subsidy that he got of $19 billion. That's almost hush money in a way. Um, it's a moral hazard because the reason why the subsidy was so high was because he decided to have a trade war with China. And the people affected with that the most were farmers. And so to keep farmers happy, they gave them more subsidies to keep them quiet. Um, and there was, there was one farmer who just wanted his markets back. Um, he was of the belief that what the Trump administration were doing was wrong because it was directly interfering with farmers markets and they did not want a government bailout in a, what, in a sense. Uh, they just wanted to have access to their foreign markets. Um, and the same thing happens here in Georgia, um, where you have agricultural figures like Sonny Perdue, who really get popular because of their pro-farming stance, that they're for farmers, they're for ranchers. They're for these industries that nobody wants to be against farmers because without farmers, you do not have food and everybody needs food to survive. And so they like to appeal to farmers as much as they can to strengthen their brand of what they're selling. Whereas I don't think the Democratic Party of today has really done much as in they do not propagandize farmers as much. Um, what we often see from more liberal media is farm workers, uh, the labor, the independent contractors that farmers use. Um, 
and there's not much talk of the farmer themselves. And so it kind of feeds into this dichotomy of Republicans keep talking about the farmer. I'm a farmer, they're for me. The Democratic Party talks about my workers and they say things that will hurt my business. And so while the two are in no way mutually exclusive, that constant reassurance from uh, news coverage helps to feed that dynamic of farmers being more conservative than liberals today. You know, and I think, cause like you look at a lot of our um, more, well, our democratic candidates, right? And a lot of them don't really have that rural upbringing that, you know, a lot of our conservatives claim, right? You look at, um, you look at Kemp mm -hmm. and Kemp comes from a rural background. Kemp presents very rurally, right? That's like his, that's his aesthetic. And mm -hmm. so it makes sense that he was popular with a lot of these rural communities within Georgia. You look at, you know, the, the appeal of Ronald Reagan and this very, you know, kind of rural aesthetic. And so, you know, you look at your average Democrat probably, and, you know, excluding John Ossoff, but you look at your average Democrat and a lot of them come from more urban areas. So I guess it kind of boils down to like focus and understanding of the issues. Cause I'm like, there is like a divide, right? Because like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm from, you know, a more urban area, right? And so generally, unless I'm having like a conversation with somebody that I know is from a farm, um, you know, that's not like super within my scope. And so I have to like make the effort, you know, a concentrated effort to, you know, actually educate myself on, you know, the, the intricacies and facets of farm life and rural life, right? Like I have rural family, but like mm -hmm. until I actually like sat down to look into what their lifestyle entailed, you know, my, my, my knowledge and scope on that was very limited. And so I think that's like part of the issue mm -hmm. um, and further creates that divide and um, separation with the Democratic Party and a lot of mm -hmm. these rural communities, you know? Um, I think what, that's an interesting topic to bring up lifestyle of farmers. And I think what can oftentimes lead to more conservative views among farmers is the, the tacit of personal responsibility um, because the life of a farmer is very hard. Um, my dad wakes up at 5 a.m. to go to work because he has to work all day. Um, and during the summer, it's wake up at five, be home around seven or eight when the sun goes down. And that's the summers when we're not too busy. Um, we, in the summer, we just do fruits, uh, watermelons, cantaloupes, tomatoes. Um, we'll do peas, um, uh, cucumbers, squash, but 
we're specialty farmers, particularly. Um, we grow sweet Vidalia onions in Tattnall County. And when it's onion season, my dad is hardly home because he has to work so much. Um, and I, I always helped my dad, but whenever he was unable to be there for the onion season, I had to take his place and I would just exhausted all the time. It was wake up at five, go to work. Maybe uh, some days I'll be home as late as one o'clock in the morning, midnight, because you have, you have to work those long hours to make sure that you make you one, fill your orders, two, you get everything packaged in time and you hope that the truck driver gets there on time and is not late. Um, and so I feel like the sense of personal responsibility is very high among farmers. And if I do this, if I'm working this hard and I am scraping by, then other people should be able to too. Mm. Um, there is the fear of a welfare state where they um, sometimes it can be seen as um, they'll know someone in their community who is on welfare and they do not work, but they seem to be doing just fine. Whereas you have farmers working 10, 12 hours a day and they're scraping by and they're just hoping. And so I think in that sense, it further ostracizes uh, farmers from more progressive views when some things would be beneficial to them. And I think what's also very important is to not deem all farmers as conservative and that they only believe conservative views because most farmers will tell you the government needs to step in and to break these corporations up because it's not fair. It is, they are not playing by the same rules as everybody else. Uh, it is not a level playing field. And that in and of itself, that government regulation, that government stepping in is by no means a conservative viewpoint or talking point. Um, Republicans do not want that to happen. Um, the Republican party will never break up a large corporation like that. Um, and you look back in uh, Alabama at Tyson, um, how they've had farmers anonymously ask the government, they've come forward to break up Tyson and nothing has happened. And that documentary has been out for years now, showcasing what it's like to be a chicken mm -hmm. farmer in the United States. It is not easy. Um, but by really just talking to farmers to see where their frustration lies, um, I thought that my father um, was conservative through and through, but he has like, he has opinions that are not vote red down the ballot. Um, there are more problems in play here. There is a deep seated corruption within our government 
that does not want to help the little guys. Mm -hmm. It just mm -hmm. so happens that the people currently in power are almost scapegoating or appealing to farmers more so than the other party is really what it is. And so it's that appeal of, I will help you more than the other people that tends to have their vote. And being from a rural community, the biggest uh, issue I hear about in Georgia is, well, we don't want Atlanta running the state. There's more, George, there's more to Georgia than just Atlanta. Um, so I really think it's rural versus urban whenever these discussions take place of why do rural communities typically vote conservatively? I think, you know, and one thing that's like often lost within these discussions is there's so much commonality, right? The, the poor rural farmer has a lot more in common with the poor urban black than they do with, you know, the people in power, right? Um, but the way that our political system has, you know, geared itself is to divide. And a lot of that division comes based off of very, rac very racist coded things, right? You know, you mentioned the welfare state. And, you know, a lot of the talking point, especially looking back at Ronald Reagan, was, you know, this fear of the welfare queen, right? This fear of people that were able to abuse the welfare system, despite the fact that, you know, studies in fact show that abuse of that system, you know, while inevitable, would not be widespread, you know? More like the majority of, of you know, federal aid would be used because people need federal aid, right? And so, you know, you use this kind of racially coded language to divide people, despite the fact that there's so much more in common. But if people recognize their commonalities, you know, they'd be able to unite against things such as big corporations and these common things that keep people below or barely above the poverty line. And the system doesn't want that, right? It's all systemic you know, from systemic racism to systemic class division. And that's all that it is, you know. Mm -hmm. So to not shift from classism at all, because of course we're gonna dive in on that as in defense of humanity, we have no choice. Um, but I do want to sort of get to the meat of the conversation, rather the, the layers of the mm -hmm. conversation and talk about Vidalia onions a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, what makes them special? Why grow them? Can I grow them at home? What do they do? Okay, um, so Vidalia onions are arguably the state of Georgia's most regulated crop. Uh, they can only grow in three counties in the state of Georgia, if I remember right. And the appeal to them is they are sweet. Uh, they have more sugar in them than an apple. And so it's this rare commodity that only we have. And it's 
our uh, bread and butter. It really makes or breaks our fiscal year, uh, essentially. Um, and how we started in that is it was just family business. Um, my grandfather and his brothers, they had the Dasher brothers. And um, from there, that company broke up. And then my dad and my granddad, they decided that they wanted to keep going in their own way, uh, farm together. And now I'm involved. Uh, I don't know if I will keep going because mm. currently it is very hard and there is, there is low incentive for new people to join the market. Um, because for Vidalia Onions, the largest uh, companies are GNR Farms, uh, Folsom Farms, and they can, it's hard to compete with them. Um, we don't actually sell to grocery stores, even though we've tried. Um, we've had to shift towards fundraising programs uh, to sell our onions. And the way mm -hmm. that we've done that is um, we contact shrine clubs across the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. And we get in contact with them, see if they want to sell Vidalia onions as a fundraiser for their shrine club to help raise funds for whichever um, philanthropy that they're deciding to do. And we've also tried to branch that out towards school systems, such as like the 4-H club in the state of Georgia and uh, any organization in general. But that is how we sell our onions is there is no grocery store retailer that we can sell to because it mm. is so hard to get in because why should they buy from us when they can get it for cheaper somewhere else, such as their warehouse uh, or one of our larger competitors that is able to sell it for cheaper. Okay. Okay. So that's interesting. That's very interesting. And you, and are they only legally able to be grown in these three counties? Yes. Or can you grow them anywhere on coastal Georgia? You can't grow them anywhere on coastal Georgia. It's regulated to these three counties. Okay. That's interesting. So my next question is, since you work with organizations to raise funds and here at In Defense of Humanity, we love to help small businesses. Could In Defense of Humanity organize one of these events so that you could attempt to sell your full bundle, bushel, everything um, that you have left over uh, to raise funds for you? And it would also be good press for the show helping small businesses. All the funds go to you. We love you, Christian Dash. We want you to succeed in this farm. Sorry. And our platform isn't massive, but I, I guarantee who say, I've never tried one. I'd love to try one. Indeed. So could we organize an event to where In Defense of Humanity hosts Christian Dasher selling onions? Um, yes, we can always give it a shot. Um, you did break up. Oh, no. Uh, I think I got the gist. You wanted to have an event where uh, I sell you Vidalia onions. 
the uh, and I think it's three counties that you can only sell it the the regulation of it is mm -hmm. you have to grow it within 75 miles of Vidalia. Okay. Okay. And I think that's three counties. It may okay. be a little more like maybe three or five, but I don't think much more than that, but okay. it's the highest regulated crop in mm -hmm. the state of Georgia. That, that makes sense. Otherwise you can't call it Vidalia because it wouldn't be in the region of Vidalia. That makes sense. But um, yeah, I would be down to help uh, everyone that hasn't had a Vidalia onion should definitely try it. Um, there's also several uh, localized books of just how to cook a sweet Vidalia onion. Mm -hmm. And so there's just been a culture around uh, this produce that we've been having an onion festival in Tattnall County. There's a uh, onion festival in Vidalia that this crop has helped a lot of people in these communities and they're very good to put it frank mm -hmm. that people throw festivals for them um, but I, I'm not sure if uh, onion festival will be held this coming May we'll have to see um because i know they canceled this last one um but yeah what, what would you need from me to help set this up okay so i hope my audio is fine right now uh so basically we would just set up a little event it'd probably have to be virtual mm -hmm. because of covid19 uh we could set up like a little stand, have a Zoom webinar or one of those like live events that, you know, the women who are selling and the men who sell doTERRA and LuLaRoe on Facebook. So we could be like, hey, we have this onion. This onion's two pounds. I don't know how big they get. Uh, so all of the funds go directly to the Dasher family and their farm. Uh, we'll start the bidding. I don't know if you're allowed to bid on Vidalia onions. I know they're extremely regulated. So I don't know how that works at all. Um what would probably be the best thing is um, we could just flat out sell them at a specific rate. Mm -hmm. um, and there's different bags um, because the way you grade onions, there's a grade A or a grade, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A grade two. Um, and then from there you have sizes from peewees to medium to large to jumbo mm. um, and mixed even. And so after we um, price them and weigh them, because we sell them in five pound bags, mm -hmm. uh, 10 pound bags, and 25 pound bags, and then 50 pound master bags. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a wide variety of options that we sell them in. Um, shipping would just be the, the thing that would be an obstacle because whenever we do ship, we do large mm. quantities in a freight that's cooled. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we could probably do like the online event, get everyone to anyone who wants them to say they want them. And then I would come down personally, pick them up and then ship them out um, 
cooled, chilled, and like extremely fast overnight shipping. That way we don't have to order freight. It'd be nice if we could get an order <laughs> from the audience large enough to get a freight shipping from you. Cause that uh, would I, probably <laughs> help out a lot. That would, uh, but a full, a full uh, truckload of Vidalia onions runs around $40,000. So I don't know. Hey, hey, we might have some generous uh, audience members. <laughs> It'd be nice. We'll, um, we'll see. But then again, like uh, I, just mentioning that's also a good talking point is um, like in a farmer, in farming in general, you'll hear large numbers be thrown around like $40,000. Holy shit. Uh, that's more than some people make in a year. And you're telling me farmers are struggling. There is much more at play because. Oh, of course. Most farmers have, have substantial loans from mm -hmm. banks mm -hmm. to be able to afford their equipment. And everything is at such a scale that while you're working with large numbers, you're also having to spend large numbers. And so what you're left with is very little. Um, some years it's been very rough um, and we haven't got what we were expecting and it was hard that year. And so this is the hardship that a lot of people have faced, but whenever farmers have asked for help before in the past, that's what they've been met with is mm -hmm. we see you have these, these big tractors. We see you have these large machineries. Uh, what you clearly don't need the help because that came from somewhere. Um, mm. And that's where the conversation often stops is they don't want to listen to what farmers have to say about the issues they're currently facing. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Khalid, do you have any more questions? Nothing that really comes um, immediately to mind. I know that we're pushing up on um, the meeting time here. Mm -hmm. Well, I would very much like to do some more research. Obviously, I've made an indefensive humanity promise, so to speak, <laughs> with Vidalia Onions. And if the audience is any remembers anything, anytime I've ever said anything on the show, I have to live up to it because people are listening to it. Thus, we will be organizing an event in which uh, Christian Dasher and family associates will be able to get their Vidalia onions, heavily restricted crop in Georgia, out to the public. Um, I know we have listeners in California. Uh, maybe some of our listeners who are in Canada and France might not be able to get the onions. I'm sorry about that. But anyone else in the continental United States can definitely have the opportunity to get them. Um, that being said, Christian Dasher, we're going to talk about some more interesting stuff on the after show in defense of time. So okay. if anyone here likes random stuff, well, it's a Patreon exclusive starting at $3 a month in defense of time. You can listen to us talk about interesting things. Uh, Christian Dasher, once again, thank you for being on In Defense of Humanity. Khalid, uh, your final thoughts? Wait, election will be over by now. Um, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's past that time. But uh, thank you for joining us, Christian. Yeah.
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always fun.